How's everyone doing? Good? Man, it's been nice weather, right? I think we should just like pen in for the next three months, have it about like this. Would that be cool or what? That'd be awesome. No, the snow people don't want it. We'll send you guys to Alaska. Take a love offering. Send the Horvath to Alaska. <laughs> Away with you. <laughs> Take the snow with you. <clears throat> okay, I digress. We're on a real important series. You know, it, it's, we don't often stop to, to think more deeply and theologically about how we see God. It makes a huge difference. And I, I mean, I, I'm curious, how many of you have met somebody, had a discussion about God, and, and, and they had a, an image of, of God as being an angry God? Is that, have, have you ever talked with someone like that? I mean, I've talked to numbers of people, you know, and, and then, then you hear the complicated piece about, you know, why my father, my earthly father was angry, so this idea of calling him father just messes me up. And so allowing uh, for a space for us to think afresh and to give Jesus the opportunity to open our eyes and our understanding to who he really is in the here and now is critical. But it's especially critical for us to think this morning about how we see because it's so easy for us. Oh, no. Are we going to have the slide thing again? We are. <laughs> I guess we're going to do it as a team again, Steve. Maybe not. Want me to try it one more time? Ah! It worked. The Apostle Paul never had to deal with this. So this concept of how we see, we, we, we can't forget about how involved the crowd is in that because we're hardwired to need one another and we learn as we kind of do life together. But it's easy sometimes to get lost in the crowd. So I want to do a little exercise this morning which is going to require you to stand up. Would you please stand up? And I'm going to ask you a question. You'll have to move to one side of the room or the other. All right? Yeah, you didn't... I hope you all had your coffee. Here's the first question. It's more important to have love for God or it's more important to have the fear of God? Love of God, move to this side of the room. More important, love of God, more important for the fear of God is this side of the room. Away people go. Hey, Jonathan. And, and you can't straddle the middle. You've got to decide which is more important, love of God or fear of God. <laughs> so you're all fear of God, folks, right? Over here on this side. So more important, yeah. 5149 split, Dave says. Fear of God. Why why'd you stay over on this side of the room? It's the beginning of wisdom. That's what uh, Julie Hawkinson said, first service, yeah. And it was, you, we actually have more fear of the God people second service than we do. Uh, we, there was only, I think, one or two people on this side of the room. How about you guys' love of God is more important. Why? He first loved you. God is love. Good. All right. Now here's the next question. It's more important to do God's will which is on this side, 
or to be with God. Do God's will, be with God. Changing a few seats. <laughs> and you have to commit, right. So this is do God's will, be with God. We have a latecomer to the party. Okay, so how, you're the be with God. Why, why is it more important to be, be with God? You can't do His will unless you're with Him. Oh, you've been listening to the sermon. How about you guys? <laughs> you can't be with Him if you don't do His will. Ah, you know what? This is what happened. Very good theological work. You can find your chair. <laughs> Thank you for doing that. Now, why in the world would I want you to be moving around like that? It's good exercise. I don't want you to fall asleep during my message. Oh, yeah. Well, here's the deal. I mean, both, both sets of those questions, it's really truth and tension. We are to love and fear God, right? I mean, you need that. And, and to your point, we can't do the, the will of God without being with Him. And being with him requires that we do the will of God. So it's, it's truth and tension. But what I wanted you to notice is how oftentimes we will, as we're making a hard decision, look at the crowd around us. Where are they going? Where's, and it's, it's very common for us to kind of check in where we are by what's happening in the room. I was very impressed with our group of people that, you know, they still held fast to what they believed. And there was a fewer number over here. Oftentimes, in a larger group like this, like if I'm at Bethel Seminary and do something similar to this, what I'll notice is that people will kind of watch and they'll go, oh, uh, Leroy over there is super smart. And he's on the other side of the room and they'll just kind of make their way over like this. I'm with Leroy, you know. But what we find is that we cannot really discover the me without the we. But that's tricky for us because we can easily lose who we are as we go through life. It looks um, kind of like this. In our lives, we start out with a DNA seed. So from parents, and really your whole genetic package is planted in this thing that God's created DNA, and you get more than just eye color, hair color. You get all kinds of personality traits, and there's some fascinating research happening right now about identical twins who are separated at birth, and how when they get them later on in life, a lot of their characteristics are very similar. The the one uh, video clip I saw, it was unbelievable how their mannerisms were the same. And they had not been with each other for, I think, 47 years. And yet when they were interviewing, they did the same things with their hands and their heads would tilt the same way. And you went, ooh, that's eerie how that is. But we know as people, it's not just that seed. We get planted into families that live in neighborhoods and we go to schools and work. And those relationships send messages that influence us, that either help us discover the authentic you or lose yourself. You know, when someone picks on you or bullies you or says something unkind, it has an influence. But so does the art teacher who looks at your piece of work in second grade and goes, whoa, you know, it's Picasso. And they, you know, it it's, then sends you into, maybe I'm good at art. Maybe I should work harder at my art. And leads you to where you should be. So all the time in our lives, 
We are interacting with people around us, and it's having a huge formative effect. To this end, watch this clip. The gentleman in the elevator now is a candid star. These folks who are entering, the man with the white shirt, the lady with the trench coat, and subsequently one other member of our staff, will face the rear. And you'll see how this man in the trench coat <laughs> tries to maintain his individuality, but little by little, He looks at his watch, but he's really making an excuse for turning just a little bit more to the wall. Now we'll try it once again. Here's the candid subject. Here comes the candid camera staff, three of them at least. And uh, this man has apparently been in groups before. with his hat on in the elevator. First he makes a full turn to the rear and Charlie closes the door. A moment later, we'll open the door. Everybody's changed positions. <laughs> now we'll see if we can use... See if we can use group pressure for some good. Now, in a moment, on Charlie's signal, everybody turns forward. There it is. Notice they take off their hats. And now, do you think we could reverse the procedure? Watch. Amazing, isn't it? I mean, just and that, that experiment has been done uh, numerous times where they've, they've done the elevator thing. They've done uh, some things where you have to differentiate between lines and they plant. They have uh, three uh, people that, that know that it's, it's a trick and then one person who's in the study and, and the people will start to say, you're supposed to say, well, is this line equal to this line? And it's obvious in the drawings but the people who are planted will go, no, it's line number three. And uh, without fail, that pressure on that single person shifts them. Now, it happens in all kinds of ways, not just in elevators and in classrooms, but it has, happens in fashion. Think about some of the fashions that I grew up with, like disco. Remember the leisure suits, guys? My dad said, well, at least you're not wearing jeans and a T-shirt, you know. He thought it was pretty cool. And then you had a wide range. How about these guys? They are ready for the discotheque. Huh? What would happen if you showed up at school, you guys, wearing that? Huh? But no, no survey, no quick survey of the 70s fashion style would be complete if you did not have a slide with Zubas. How about the Zubas? And they always had weird stuff like that, like the red, white, and blue. Who knows? But when you look at fashion, it, 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 
it's interesting the pressure that it puts on us to participate with the crowd. How come? It's because we have these mirror neurons. And it, it really is for humans, monkey see, monkey do. In fact, the whole discovery took place in a lab in Italy where they wanted to see where the pleasure center was located in monkeys. So they put an MRI cap on him, and they gave him a banana because monkeys really do like bananas. And they had two other monkeys that had caps on that were getting in line for that. But as they were watching the MRI, the pleasure center lit up on the one monkey eating the banana. But you know what? The two watching him eat, their pleasure center went off. And all of a sudden they realized, what's going on here? And the, 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 the reason that we can have empathy or have compassion or stick out our tongues towards other people is because we have these mirror neurons that interact. And so it's, it's why when you're watching a movie and you see a compassionate moment, it moves you. It's why when you see somebody, help somebody out on the street or in the workplace, it moves you because you have mirror neurons that are interacting. And it almost feels like you are right in the same movement. And so it, when this guy is in the elevator and he takes off his hat, by this time, you know, he's almost on autopilot. Take it off. Put it on. Turn sideways. Take it off. You know, and... You're just following the crowd. And we're wired in some sense to move with the crowd. So the whole concept of going against the grain is very difficult for us. And oftentimes the problem with that is the crowd's not correct. Ask Copernicus or Galileo. Both of them had said, listen, the earth is not the center of the solar system. Now Copernicus, when he wrote his book, was close to the end of his life. So at that point in time, the Catholic Church couldn't try him as a heretic. But Galileo, they could. And when he made the announcement, they said, no, you're wrong because the way that we interpret the Scriptures is man is God's kind of chief and prized possession and creation. Of course the earth is in the center of the solar system. And they put pressure on him, and the crowd won the day. Galileo needed to say publicly that he was wrong and do his church penance, and that was that. But the problem with a system like that is the crowd is wrong. And then it puts pressure on a person who's got an insider revelation and makes them feel exiled like this. Which all the things, I mean, the mirror neurons are one thing. Wanting to be in with the in crowd is another thing. But the fear of being exiled, put out, reminds us so much of the Genesis experience. It feels like death. If you've never been invited to the party, if you've never been included, like Brennan's story of being picked last on the playground, all of us empathize with this because we've been in a place where we were exiled. You just go, whoa, what's wrong with me? And so we oftentimes feel like it's just safer to be with the crowd. And that's a problem if you're trying to discover who Jesus is, especially in his day. What were some things that they said about Jesus? Jesus is a liar, right? They said he was a drunkard. They said he was a glutton. Some said he had a demon. His own family went to him and said, you're crazy, you're coming with us. So if you would have followed any one of those crowds, you would have missed it. So how do we know today we haven't? If we've got this mirror neuron thing going on, if we're hardwired to kind of monkey see, monkey do, if we want a place in the crowd, how do we do this? It feels like we're toast. We're in trouble. What's going to save us from this plight? 
And of course, the gospel's true. He's going to save us. He's the one who's going to open our eyes. He's the one who's going to make it possible to see him as he really is. Because if you go back to this little drawing, you see with God, you, you see God working all kinds of things. He's working in relationships. I had so many people when I was new to the faith that had mentored me and invested in me. It's incredible. The more I talk to people, I'm shocked. God sent people to have a mentoring influence and to help me grow in Christ. There's limited amounts of research, but it's fascinating. When people are born again, there's DNA changes. In fact, people who are drug addicts, their DNA undergoes a change. Now, there's not a lot of funding to study this, but the reality is, is God's, when you're born again, it, it seems to have a physiological impact on your DNA. God guides, uh, guides us into experiences that help us, and we know that as we move through these relationships and experiences, he is faithful to complete the work he started. We can have a confidence that God is at work, and God wants his light to break through, and he wants revelation. He wants the light bulb to turn on. He's, he's desirous of us seeing him for who he is and following him in that. So I want to talk with you a little bit about this idea of revelation. Because it's a process. It starts on the outside, and then inside that light bulb goes on. So, in this picture, there is a face. Can you find it? How many can't find it? How many have seen it before? Yeah. And it, unfortunately, because of how the stage is set up, it's kind of tough. But the, the guy's face is there, and it is right here. And you go, ah, because a revelation just took place. And you go, oh. And now, like many of these things, once you see it, you, you can, cannot not see it, right? It's just right there. And you look at the picture, and you go, oh, da-da-da-da, there he is. So when God comes to turn on the light, he wants it to be turned on in a way that you can't miss what he's turned on. So now turn with me to Matthew 16. Jesus is moving through with his disciples. He's approaching a time that's transitory, and he, he wants to do a quiz. So they come to Caesarea Philippi, and this is what the scripture says in Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? In other words, what are the crowds saying? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now think about this for a moment. This is how we think spiritually and theologically. And this is one of the tricks for us when it comes to revelation, is we tend to reach back to what we know, or back to what we've experienced. This is why there's worship wars in churches, where people say, don't bring that electric guitar in here. We only listen to the organ. We only have pianos. Don't bring drums in here. And because their formative experience spiritually was probably, for them, back at a time that was just piano music. And so they reached back to that. And so what the crowd is doing is they're reaching back 
These are their best guesses. He's John the Baptist, or he's one of the prophets. But Jesus doesn't spend a lot of time correcting what the crowd is thinking. He's more concerned about what they're thinking. So he asks, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And you better believe the disciples were looking around, weren't they? I mean, I can just imagine Peter looking at John and going, why don't you take this one? I'm always in trouble. And Thomas kind of leaning forward, and maybe he's whispering questions to Thaddeus or someone. But I'm sure they're looking around. But good old Peter steps forward, and he answers. He says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Three cheers for Peter as he gets this revelation. And Jesus answers him, and he says, Blessed are you, Simon. Why? For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Now notice that this is a key. Jesus is saying, you're not getting this because the crowd told you. You're not getting this because even I told you. You're getting this because there's been a heavenly revelation. You've seen me for who I truly am. You got it. The Father revealed it. And for every one of us in this room, this is exactly what God wants. The personal encounter and revelation for you to say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's not good enough for you to get my story. You have to get your own story. He wants to reveal himself to you. It's the desire of the Father. But here's where Christians sometimes get stuck, is they think it's a one-and-done experience. And it's not. This is only Messiah 101. He's going to move Peter quickly to Messiah 202 because look what happens. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Why? Because he doesn't want them listening to them. He wants a personal revelation to visit the people he visits. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. This blows Peter's mind. He takes him aside and he rebukes him. He says, never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned to him and said, Peter, get behind me, Satan. Ouch. You are a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You see, the revelation starts to unfold. Peter starts to see that he is the Messiah, but he's still got an understanding of what that Messiah should do and be, doesn't he? And he says, oh, you can't die? What? That's not what the Messiah does. No, Peter, follow the revelation. Understand this. And we are always in a place where God wants us to grow in our understanding, to grow in our our ability to see Him. This is why we ask you the question, what is God saying to you? And what are you going to do about it? Because we know, Jesus says, my sheep will hear my voice. We know in John 17, Jesus says this, eternal life means to know you, the only true God, and to know Jesus Christ whom you sent. An ongoing, active knowing this ongoing revelation of who he is to us and what he is doing around us and what he's doing in us and what he's doing through us. And this is the key. There are so many Christians that I talk to 
that are kind of in, in my age group. They came in through the charismatic movement in the late 70s, early 80s, and, and God was doing miracles, and there was a real sense of His Spirit moving and everything. But they, they say, well, you know, I, I don't really sense the same thing anymore. People, is God on vacation? Has God stopped doing what He did, not just in the 70s and 80s, but in the New Testament? We would say no, right? The question is, is our revelation of God today, is it that fresh revelation that does this? Because this is where Jesus takes them. He says, then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. In other words, if you have the revelation that I am Savior and Lord, let me drive. Get rid of the bumper sticker that says God is my co-pilot. Woe unto you if he's the co-pilot. You want God to be the pilot. That's what he is saying in this verse. He's saying, listen, if you have the revelation, if you see me, then trust me. Trust me with your finances. Trust me with your kids. Trust me with loving that difficult person. Trust me with their job. Trust me. Trust me. Trust me. And as you do, you grow in the knowledge and understanding of who he really is. So, some years ago when I was playing the church in New Brighton, God was really laying on our hearts that we needed to be active as his church, praying for the sick. And so we determined in our hearts that we would pray for people in classrooms, in workplaces, wherever we were, we would just say, God, we believe that you are a healer, and so therefore we are going to extend that to whoever we meet that has a healing need. And I had just preached the sermon, and I was meeting with one of our worship leaders in the church named Jesse, and we were going into this coffee shop. And, um, you know, this is pretty fresh in my mind and heart. I know God wants us to pray for healing. So we step up to get our coffee, and there's a pretty long line of people in the coffee line. And you know, when it's pre-coffee, it's a dangerous time. I mean, someone could lose digits over this. You know, you don't, you don't want to mess around with the coffee line, right? Yes, he's here, right. So we, Jesse and I step up to order our coffee, and when the lady comes over, she's moving just really gingerly. And I recognize as a person who struggled with back problems, something's wrong with her back. So I, I asked her, I said, are you okay? And then a tear started to roll down her eye. And she said, no, I just, my back just popped out and I've got to work all day and I don't want to do. At that moment, Jesus revealed himself to me. He said, I want you to pray for her, which I already knew. Now, ladies and gentlemen, would it be sufficient if I just stopped there and I didn't pray for her? And Jesse and I went back and I had our coffee and I said, Wow, did you know Jesus spoke to me and said that I was supposed to pray for her? Right? That's like, come on, buddy. So, this is a risk. It's a stretch. In fact, the reality is is that if we're going to do this, this is what it feels like. Right like that. And that's me, and that's the Father watching over me. Really, this whole idea of, you know, it doesn't sound very rosy. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. One person says, and trust themselves. I like that. We've got to, if we really believe that he's trustworthy, then do we give him trust? 
So in this moment, I take a deep breath and I say to the man, I say, you know what, ma'am, would it be okay if we prayed for you? Well, now both eyes are tearing up. And, and she goes, I, I would really appreciate that. And then I look at the people who have not yet had their coffee and I think, this could be martyrdom. <laughs> but, we, but I say, is it okay if we lay our hands on you? Yes, it is. So we pray, you know, and it, it just, it's a relatively quick prayer. Lord, would you please um, minister to this woman's back, to her heart? Would you encourage her? Amen. And what was interesting is, is when I opened up my eyes after praying, the whole coffee line was praying. They all had their, their eyes closed and their heads bowed. And they go, amen, amen, amen. And they're probably like, hurry up, get out of there so we can get our coffee. But I say to the lady, I, I said, now, did, did anything happen to your back? She goes, I'm not sure about my back, but she said, it sure helped my heart. And, you know, so I, I don't, I trust that the Lord was ministering to her body, soul, and spirit. But that moment, was a stretch moment. And see, oftentimes, we're just looking for the revelation, and we're saying, Lord, just tell me this, or show me this. But what Jesus wants us to do is, once I've shown you, will you live this? Will you do this? Will you be a part of this? Will you follow me into this? And as we do that, sometimes we have to go across the grain of the crowd. We have to go across the grain of the flow of where the world is going. And we go through because... We have this gift inside of us, the Holy Spirit. Because when Jesus comes, he comes not only to reveal himself in the Gospels and reveal himself to humanity then, and then become the sacrifice, become the, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, but he says, it's to your benefit that I go away. Why? Because the Spirit will come. And where is the Holy Spirit, people? Right? And now inside of you is the very peace of God that helps your eyes open, helps your soul open, helps your head open to see what God is doing in the midst of the crowd and to move past it. So Jesus today wants to bring revelation. He wants us to see and he wants us to know that when the lost are found, they're always finding anew. Every time I go paddleboarding with Brendan, it's annoying. <laughs> He's not annoying. I've got to correct myself. It's the paddleboarding with Brendan that's annoying. Because Brendan, Brendan's like half my age. I'm 57. I mean, even as I stand here, I have my fake hips, my wacky back, and all this stuff. And he'll, we'll go paddling out, and he'll say to me this. What are you going to do today that stretches you? And I'm thinking, you know what stretched me? It stretched me to get up off my knees and stand up on this thing. That's enough stretch. And he'll say, well, let's try this. Let's try walking backwards on the paddleboard. It's like, you're nuts. Do you want to go see Jesus in that big of a hurry? You know? But when I was doing this sermon, I, I, there was something about that that was provocative to me. It was evocative. It, it, I realized that, you know, Jesus brings revelation because he wants us to follow him into the stretch, out of the known zone into the faith zone. And I don't know what the Lord is doing in your life, but I know this, the Lord wants to do something in your life. Amen? He does. And he wants to do something in your life in a way that brings revelation, where you see him working in you, through you, around you, in a marvelous way. And so, as we close here in prayer, I want to pray. And I want you to, to open up your heart, and I want you to listen. So let's pray. 
Lord, this whole message is about revelation, about moving with you, not getting pulled along with the crowd or getting lost in the crowd, but moving with you. Right now, me and my friends have closed their eyes and opened our hearts. And we say, is there any revelation you want to bring? Is there a person you want to send us to? Is there something that you want us to see? Is there a concern that you want us to turn over to you fresh? Because as we do this offering, it's a great time for us to offer all of us. So Lord, as we move into a time of worship and prayer, I pray that we would ask ourselves afresh, how am I seeing you? How has the crowd maybe caused me to pull back? How maybe have I held back? I've heard you say, I want you to talk with this person or pray for this person or whatever it might be. But we haven't mixed our faith with what we've heard. So Jesus, thank you for second, third, and fourth tries. Thank you for your mercy. And thank you for revealing yourself and moving in our midst right now. Would you come, Jesus, right now and move in our midst even as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.